We're off Going to really a rough good. start. Tough crowd. Well, good morning. For those who do not know who I am, my name is Tommy. Earlier, um, hi. Earlier, they were announcing classes and they announced the spiritual leadership class, and the a boy behind was like, "Who's Tommy?" I'm like, "A lot of a lot of people are wondering that." So if you're wondering, <laughs> I'm Tommy. Um, I work with the underground, um, and today, really, it is my honor and my privilege to have the opportunity to interview one of my heroes. If you guys know anything about me and uh, just kind of my leadership and what is, who has shaped my leadership, probably the most aside from my InterVarsity staff, um, who are not in the room, I don't think, um, it's been this man right here, Brian Sanders. And so a lot of you know who he is, um, but in the event that you don't, um, he is the executive director of the Underground Network founder of the Tampa Underground. Um, he has written some books on the matter, in fact. Um, and if you were not here, I guess when that would have been, January, uh, we commissioned him, his wife, the rest of his family, as well as a small team of people to go to Ireland. So he's currently out there um, doing work amongst the church in Ireland, kind of helping them think through some structures and uh, mission. And so as we think about who we are as a community, part of uh, how we wanted to kind of welcome them back in this short period that we have them, I mean, any chance that we get to, to kind of hear from, from Brian, I can't think of a single person who um, maybe has more to say about life and ministry and mission um, and, and calling than this person right here. And uh, a lot of who we are in this room is because of, of his voice over the years. And so just wanted to welcome Brian, give it up for him as he is with us. Man, we it, should always start like this. This is a good, <laughs> it's a good start. <laughs> and so um, kind of the idea today, really what I wanted to do, if it was totally up to me, I would just have Brian like, tell us everything about Ireland and the team, and we'd have like a missions minute. Like if it was up to me, have you, you guys ever been a part of a church that's like does a missions minute? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's okay. If you went to a traditional church, sometimes they have a missions minute, and he would kind of tell us all about Ireland. But um, instead, we wanted to kind of have this conversation or a, a dialogue, um, just allowing him to kind of share some of his thoughts regarding um, maybe his current headspace in terms of leadership, while also speaking into some of the things that we feel as a community that maybe um, being uh, a founder and having such a, a strong authority um, in this community, maybe he could speak to. Um, and so first thing that maybe I kind of want to open us up with, last week, as Lucas had mentioned, we had unlocked and 39 people gave their life to Jesus, but we had these cards, and on the cards, everyone was invited to uh, write a room in which they were inviting Jesus into, um, a place where they were hoping that Jesus would unlock. Um, and of those, the, the, there were these major themes that came up. Fear, um, a lot of people were saying they were dealing with insecurity. There was lots of questions around identity. Um, and so I, I just kind of wanted to, to allow you to speak into that. How do we deal with anxiety and fear, especially amongst this community that's so leadership mission-driven? We're outward. We're thinking outwardly. And yet inwardly, we still wrestle with fear, insecurity, and identity. 
Yeah, I <clears throat> okay, so if that's there's a lot of options there. Let's let's choose anxiety. Uh, how's that sound? Does anyone feel anxious right now about the I'm anxious right now. Who is currently experiencing anxiety? I don't yeah, well thank you for raising your hand. That's amazing. That's a step. Good for you. Um you know I would say that we live in an age of chronic anxiety. I, I think, in fact, I would. I. It's hard to to measure these sorts of things uh, anthropologically, but there is. It, it, there's a case to be made that this is the most anxious generation of human beings that have ever existed, um, and we have to try to maybe unpack why that is first. Uh, you're probably not going to get anywhere if we don't understand the source of that anxiety. What is it about the milieu, the environment in which we live now and, and do ministry and lead, try to be leaders, that is so uniquely anxious? Um, and I think, uh, at least phenomenologically, you have to, you have to look at the, the space we now call social media and the relationship that that has to our growing sense of foreboding and anxiety. It's, there is a massive correlation between those two realities. So I would compare it to, um, I, would I would compare social media to Mark 5, and there's a story in, in Mark's gospel about Jesus confronting a man who was so possessed by demons that it was like this multiplicity. Do you remember the, the Gerasene demoniac? Do you remember that story? And he had, he, he, he had this encounter with this kind of possessed person and he asked, what is your name? And he said, our name is Legion. Do you remember that? Which a legion, a Roman legion would be 6,000, 6,000 soldiers. So it's like, what is it like to live with this internal raging multiplicity of voices that hate you inside you and i mean not not to be too i don't know dramatic about it but but when you engage into when you when you step into the social media atmosphere environment whatever what do you really have you have this singular relationship with your social media channel so you have one relationship with Twitter, but it's thousands of voices, many of them hostile towards you or towards your ideas or towards the ideas of your friends. And so what actually is happening, part of what's happening is not just creating anxiety, but it's actually twisting what it means, what's, what is like epistemologically true. What is truth? So if you think about like the arc of our understanding of truth, uh, you could say, you know, in in I don't know, the enlightenment or modernity, truth was objective, right? It's objectively true or, or false. A thing is materially true. In post-modernity, we would have experiential truth. So there's still truth. There's still a thing is truth, but it's, it's something that you've, you've experienced, and so that's valid truth. Now I would say the space in which we live, it's tribal. Truth is tribal. 
So truth is something that is created by a group of people within this chaos of voices. Uh, reminds me of the, there's a, a, a guy called Joseph Kriesman, I think, who wrote a book about. Uh, I think it's about schizophrenia. Maybe it's called "I Love You" or "I Hate You, Don't Leave Me." Uh, that's that's what so, that reminds me of social media. "I Hate You, Don't Leave Me." That's our feelings toward that space because in it we have real friends, actually, and we actually can connect with people we love and who love us, and it is actually beneficial. It's helpful, and we see how it's helpful, and we see how it's good for us in many ways. But the problem is all of those other voices are also there too, and it's like our own legion. It's our own kind of demonic reality. The, I would say you couple that, so that, that creates incredibly anxious space for us, and then you couple that with the rise of the demagogue. And a demagogue is a person who... Uh, sort of pretends to be care about you and your interests like a leader who means to help you but really is only interested in their own uh, agenda. And the demagogue within that same space is the person who is always certain, always right, and never afraid. So in the midst of that super chaotic, super anxious space where we walk into, there are people there who are not afraid who are always right, who are sure of everything they say, and we gravitate towards those people. That's a part of what makes this tribal truth possible. And we gravitate toward them because we so want to be like that, because we so want to be non-anxious in that space, and they seem to be non-anxious there. So we're drawn to the demagogue. And of course, that's toxic. That's super dangerous because those people are wicked in their own way. They have no humility. They have no openness. There is no, there is no regard for dialogue or nuance. It's, it's I know what's right 100% of the time. So this is not, I'm not making a political statement. I'm merely saying that whether your point of view is this point of view or that point of view, there are demagogues in that that are rising. And they're rising because of the anxiety and the uncertainty that's there. So if you go back to the so, you know, so what do we do? So if you go back to the, the Legion story, there's a couple things you have to notice. One, it's a story about power. So this, I don't know, stepping into the really anxious environments for you, relationally anxious environments, is about power. So the, in that story, uh, they say to Jesus, he, they have him chained because he's so strong. And he said, every time we chain him, he breaks the chains. He's so strong. It's, it, it is, it is a, an issue of power. And Jesus knows that if he steps into that thing to try to help this man be free of this legion of voices, of voices that hate him, um, he will have to exercise power. A greater, a power greater than this sort of force within him. Uh, the second thing about that story for me is that it has to do with differentiation. So if I if I just take a step back, so in other words, don't get on social media when you're tired, because you need power, you need strength to step into that. You need spiritual clarity. You need to be 
really close and strong with Jesus before you step into that world. And unfortunately, we do the opposite. We'll get on our social media when we're tired or in bed at night or first thing in the morning. And I'm, I'm saying that's literally the worst way to engage that space. I'm not a Luddite. I'm not saying we should not be in that space. We should. But if you're going to step in there, recognize that these are, these are strong powers at work. And if you're not ready, if you're not girding yourself for a fight, essentially, spiritually, emotionally, I'm not saying, please don't, I don't mean to go, you need to go battle people and be a social media warrior or whatever. But I mean, but I mean you're about to step into a space in which the currency is, is power. And so you can't go in there weak or you will get your butt kicked. And that's what kept happening to them. They kept trying to go chain him and they weren't strong enough. So that's the first issue is power. The second is, is what we could call differentiation. It's, a, it's an amazing little phrase in Greek. It gets translated in, in that chapter, Mark, uh, what do you want with me? That's what the demon, the demoniac says to Jesus. What do you want with me? But that's really a poor uh, translation. It's it's te imoi kai soi, which essentially means what is be, what is you and me? What is the difference between you and me? Hmm. Like what do you have to do with me? So essentially, what the demon says is, what are you doing here in this world, in this space? Hmm. And who are you, and why are you here? And of course, that differentiation continues in the in the putting of the demons and the pigs, which is such a strange event. It doesn't, nothing like that happens anywhere else. It's like these, there's just this total differentiation between Jesus and who he is in the world and these demons and who they are in the world. Jesus understands himself to be from another world, made of some other kind of stuff than them. And they do too. So again, our anxiety partly is because we're, we're too enmeshed in that. We're too concerned about the, the, I don't know, the impression we're making or the amount of people that like what we think or the, the fear of someone out there criticizing uh, what we say or what we don't say or we fail to say, that we're not differentiating. We're too enmeshed in all of that. So something, I, I think our, our anxiety is going to continue as long as we, we cannot differentiate ourselves as believers, as Jesus' people, in that environment, in that space. And then the last bit, I think, has something to do with hope. Um, Soren Kierkegaard talked about anxiety as the dizziness of freedom. He called anxiety the dizziness of freedom. It's like you come to the edge of your life, the precipice of your life, and you look out at the horizon, like the future. How do you feel about your future? And, and the truth is many of us feel uncertain and we feel anxious about our future. That anxiety that we feel, it colors what, what we think will happen next in our lives or what, what are good things coming for you or bad things coming for you? Like what's, that's, for a lot of us, that's a source or at least the, I don't know, a resting place for our anxiety. But Kierkegaard said the opposite of 
anxiety is hope. It's hope. So it's not, not peace. So what you, really, what you really need as the antidote to anxiety is not to just be chill or peace. It's actually to have hope. To look out at the, the, the horizon of your life, the future, the unknown future of your life, and to feel, to really believe something good is coming for me. And of course, I think that's only really possible if we knit our story. This goes back to the differentiation. If we knit our story in with the story of Jesus, with the, the promises that he's made to us and to the world. He is busy doing something, building something, creating something. And we get to be a part of that. We are a part of that. Actually, you already are a part of that. And if you cannot see that future hope or live in that hope uh, because of your anxiety, then actually you're wrong. Hmm. Like fundamentally, you're, you're incorrect about your assessment of what's going to happen. I mean, has anyone ever felt like super anxious? Have you ever felt anxious about something and then ended up being wrong? It's not like you go back and go, well, I'll never do that again. You know, I'll never, <laughs> that's, I'm done with anxiety. That didn't work out at all. You know, yeah. it's just, in fact, what we'll do is it's like what Brene Brown's thing is like foreboding joy. Even when good things keep happening, you still just think, well, th that just means something really bad's coming. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's been good. And, 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 People have been nice to me, and I got that job, and yes, I did get the raise, and yes, the loan did come through, and yes, some good things have happened in our microchurch, but that just means, you know, like a hurricane is coming uh, next month or something. I'm not, I'm not getting excited. You know what I mean? That's a, that's a disposition toward the future. That's a disposition toward the future, which, of course, our, our anxiety. So I, I actually think that the, 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 the way to unravel anxiety has to do with actually the exertion of power like we need an exorcism yeah. it, you can't play with anxiety you have to cast it out yeah. you can't play with your fears you can't you can't coddle your anxiety or coddle your fears or incrementally deal with it it needs like a purging and then I think that comes through differentiation. If you're going to step into any space where there's a lot of anxiety, you have to know who you are coming into that space. You have to, you have to feel like I, you have to be more connected to Jesus than you are to that, those fears and those concerns. And then we have to live in hope. You know, Paul said these three remain, faith, hope, and love. We know how important faith is for salvation. We know how important love is for the functioning of the church and the people of God. But we totally neglect the discipline and the value and virtue of hope. You, you, need to, you need to cultivate hope as a leader and as a missionary. And if you don't, you're dead. You're dead. When things start going wrong or when relationships begin to break down or when someone betrays you or when the ministry just isn't becoming what you hoped it would become, the biggest threat to you at that point is that your hope would die. That your hope will die. And so I, I think those three things would be my kind of, I don't know, pro tips <laughs> on how to, how to manage your anxiety or, or purge your anxiety. You know, take it seriously. Uh, and, and I do think it is possible, even, even though I, I would say, and this is the last thing I'll say about this, but I would say for most of my life, I, I, I have been a non-anxious person. Uh, most people who know me would know that's not something I, I don't worry about what other people think of me or something like that. 
But, you know, in the last five, six years, it's like it's too strong. It's too much. And even I have, dealt, have had to deal with, like, profound anxiety. Hmm. Just this sense of, like, in your, your you know, the, the kind of, you know, knots in your stomach of just feeling like it's, it, something's going to go wrong here, you know. In fact, back to Kierkegaard, he was like he said that that anxiety is related to what he calls hereditary sin, and hereditary sin is like we we all are like born into a world in which we feel isn't right. He called it unreconciliation, yeah. and like we can't put our finger on it, but it just isn't right. So much about our experience in the world is it just feels unreconciled. There is an unreconciliation, not just between people, but between us and creation and nature, between just us and ourselves. Like there is just something isn't quite right, doesn't quite fit. And I, I think maybe I've come more in touch with that. I, maybe that's like a good thing at some level. Um, but what you ha I think what I've had to do, what you will have to do to, to move from that place of anxiety is to really cultivate hope and to believe more in the future that Jesus has promised to you and to his people than you believe in your own fears about the future. Hmm. It's a choice that you make to live in hope or to let your hope, you know, die. That's good. Wow. There's so much in that. Um... Gosh, I'm reminded of, um, I think Jonathan Haidt, Haidt, I'm going to say his last name wrong, but he talks about that fear of, not even just the fear of missing out that, you know, we've, that we've diagnosed, but even like the fear of being left out. And that's what social media does to us as uh, it cultivates that fear of being left out. But then also with that, I hear, you know, a bit of Friedman and I haven't read A Failure of Nerve. It's on its way. Um, Amazon. Uh, but, you know, just that non-anxious presence and leadership as like an emotional immune system, like yeah. as leaders, yeah. yep. you know, knowing where you start or where you end and where other people start. I hear that too. Well, and, and Friedman's great because he would say, I think this is a positive contribution to that discussion. He would say that because of our anxiety, we have lost uh, our sense of playfulness, adventure and risk. So when the, it's like, well, what's the problem? If I walk anxious or I walk non-anxious, what is that just for me? In other words, is it just I'm the beneficiary of no longer feeling anxious? No, mm. actually, the kingdom, your mission is so intricately tied. The future of this movement is tied to whether we can become non-anxious. And the reason why is because when we're anxious, we have no playfulness, no sense of adventure, and no, we can take no risks. So risk, any kind of study on risk, the psychological experience of risk, is that we have a certain capacity for risk. Mm -hmm. And then once we've used up that capacity, we conserve risk. Yeah. You know? Um, the, the best example I can think of off the top of my head was a, was a, uh, a piece of research done in Germany on taxi cabs. And they took old taxis that didn't have anti-lock brakes and they replaced them with taxis with anti-lock brakes. And so they thought, well, this is going to reduce accidents. It's going to, you know, it's going to, uh, 
make these cars safer and make these drivers safer. But actually, the cars with anti-lock brakes ended up getting in the same or more accidents than the ones without. And here's why. Because when you have anti-lock brakes, they just drove faster. <laughs> Do you understand? They took corners harder. And when you don't have them, you conserve risk. So you go slower. You take it more carefully. The truth is you can't, you can't protect, you cannot conserve risk. Once you get a little more, you burn it up. And if, if all of our risk, um, relational risk, is being taken up in our anxieties with each other, then we have nothing left to give to the world, the wider world. We're not being creative. We're not thinking outside the box. We're not expanding the, the boundaries of mission in our own smaller microchurch context. And, and even us as a movement, we won't do that because we've, we've spent all our risk internally. Mm, yeah. it's, so to lose a sense of playfulness, adventure, and risk is a massive cost to the kingdom of God. Not just to you personally, but it's a massive cost to all of us. And, you know, that playfulness and adventure and ability to take risks is also what makes life beautiful and mm. joyful and give it a certain quality, you know. So, you know, again, it's not just the, the absence of anxiety. It's, it's the, the presence of real joy and yeah. hope and playfulness and yeah. laughter and when you feel that that sense of of security, I guess, you can you can go and make take big risks and fail because you know you have that sort of anchor there. Yeah, they probably should not have put us on the same stage because now I'm thinking of other books, but I won't go there. <laughs> um, but I will go back to this idea of hope because it hits at something that I've heard you say. Gosh, I don't even know how many times, but just like the idea that like you know, hope as an antidote to anxiety, but then also this idea that those with the most hope lead yeah. is something that I've always heard you say. And so just like how those things relate to each other is really interesting, like anxiety, hope, and really it's hope that enables our leadership. It's um, good. Yeah. And so kind of going with that idea of anxiety, I mean, we feel anxiety, and a lot of people in here, I mean, I, I don't have a, a survey or a direct number, but I mean, as a community, not only are we dealing with, with anxiety and insecurity and identity issues, but as we lead and put ourselves on the frontiers of mission, we're coming face to face with failure and like hardship. And, and that can be really taxing on identity to feel like, man, what, what am I doing? And especially if like, I don't know, I was thinking about like, I don't know, I don't have studies on this, but Enneagram 3 is achievers in America. Like, we are a very achievement-oriented culture, and part of achievement is I am what other people think of me. And so, I don't know, I just was wondering if you could even speak to that, that balance or the, the paradox of performance and insecurity, uh, identity, failure in ministry and mission. Um, yeah, just if you had any thoughts on that. That's good. So I'm I'm in I'm in Ireland now, and um, you know the Irish are they have a long history of like oppression. You know they they've been they've been sort of under the boot um, of of stronger military powers for most of their history, and so they have a sense of like I don't know what you'd call it like inadequacy or inferiority it's very it's very it's very common for me to 
to bump up against an Irish person who's incredibly experienced, gifted, and prepared for a certain like role in leadership. And they have, they have no sense of belief that they could do it. Like, no, no, never me. I would never put myself forward for that. And I'm like, you, you've been doing that for 20 years. You're probably the best person in this city doing that. If not you, then who? And they're just like, no, never. I could never do that. And it's just like a phenomenon. It's, it's, and what, what's interesting is not just, that they, not just that that's a reality for them, but just how different we are. So Americans <laughs> would be maybe uh, the opposite of that. <laughs> so you, a person would have no experience or no ability in a certain area, and yet they're quite sure, 100% sure, they could do it. Uh, like we don't, I, I, I've not had a lot of, I've not had a lot of trouble convincing Americans they're, they could do it. You know, they're capable. Um, but the problem is, the problem with that is the not. And so the, the spirit of like, go try it is great. It's beautiful. In fact, it's an, it's the envy of other cultures. They look over at Americans. They say, we like that about you. We like that you just think anything can be done. Like you don't see the problem. You think anything can be done. But the problem from our, so now I can talk to us as, as people from this culture. I can say, but sometimes we're overconfident. Always we're overconfident. Um, and that gets us in trouble for a couple reasons. One, not just because it may not work, but because we're not equipped emotionally for failure. Okay, so this is really important to understand. Um, there was a time in the 1950s when surveyed young uh, children, grade school children, when asked the question, when surveyed, are you special? Are you special? Only 12% of respondents of kids in the 1950s would have said yes. They would have answered that question affirmative. I want you to just really try to drink this in for a second. 12% would say, yes, I am special. And because of that like gap of self-esteem, you had like wildly influential thinkers like Benjamin Spock, who said the, the core problem with young people in America or with the future is self-esteem. We have got to convince kids that they're special, that they can do anything they want that they can be anything they want to be. And so we set out on that great American social experiment to see if we could convince every kid in America that they're special. And by the 1980s, by the 1980s, that number had breached 80% and is now pushing 90%. So listen, say, say with me for a second. Now, if we ask kids, are you special? Or even, even my generation, if 80% if of my generation would ask, are you special? We said, yeah, heck yeah. <laughs> I could do anything. I can be whatever I want to be. And that all seems good. It just seems like if only people could believe in themselves, it's what's called self-fulfilling prophecy. If only people could believe in themselves, they could achieve great things. But that social experiment is a failure. Because... While we have the highest reporting self-esteem 
in the history of the human race, we also have the highest levels of suicide ideology, the highest levels of depression, the highest levels of self-harm in human history. It didn't work. And I'm going to tell you why it didn't work. It didn't work because we were told we're special. We were told we could do anything. But guess what? You're still going to fail. And you're still a sinner. And you're still going to have broken relationships. And nobody prepared us for that. So we tried something. It didn't work the first time we tried it. And we threw up our hands and said, what's, what's going on with the world? What's wrong with this world? Or what's wrong with me? Because everyone knows I'm special. Why did my microchurch fail? And then we experience this incredible existential crisis. Identity crisis. Maybe I'm not special. Maybe I'm the one kid that wasn't special. And so it actually goes into depression. We actually go... The, it has like a reverse effect on us. Are you, are you with me? Are you following me? Is this happened to anyone? Don't, don't, don't raise your hand. But if we, we really believed we were supposed to be special and we didn't have an identity of inadequacy and failure, which is just part of being human. So actually a fuller, truer Christian worldview or identity is this beautiful paradox, this impossible paradox, that on the one hand, a, a deep intimate relationship with God will reveal that you are worthy and beloved and the object of his affection, eternally valuable because of the price that he paid for you. And simultaneously, an intimate relationship with that same God will reveal that you are a worm and a slob, and a deeply broken sinner. And it's in that paradox that we are truly human. That we can actually live, well, non-anxious, holy lives. Try to live holy lives. The problem is we, we, we have come to believe that it is possible to live a life where we are not sinning and hurting people and failing. And that's just nonsense. And because we can't reconcile that with the belief that we're special, we, either, we have two choices. We either go into depression over that reality, or we just block out our flaws completely. And we, and we, just, we, we refuse to believe that we are anything other than awesome and perfect. We have, we have, there are people in great positions of power today <laughs> who have that perspective that I can't, I do not ever fail or do anything wrong. And that is a way to go, a totally self-deluded way. Uh, that is a way to cope with this like identity problem, crisis of identity. One is depression. The other is total self-delusion that you only ever blame because it's only ever other people that do things wrong, not you. And again, the beautiful, powerful, profound paradox of the Christian worldview is they're both true at the same time. If you say to me, uh, you know, like uh, a lot of you know Jason Thompson. And Jason was, is a great guitar player. He's a great musician. And he just decided, I don't know, five years ago that he wanted to learn how to play the violin. The violin is a very difficult instrument. 
Anybody? Hello? It's very difficult. There's no frets, and it's just hard. To, it just sounds bad for a long time. So if you're going to practice, it's just, you know, God bless your family or whatever. And so he just decided he was going to learn how to play the violin. Uh, and then he ends up, you know, of course, Jason, he focuses, he does this for years, and then he ends up, you know, uh, joining an orchestra that toured the world and played, like, professional violin. But... To get there, does anyone think that the first day he picked up a violin, he was supposed to be good at it? Would you would you expect that of yourself? Does it just nod or something. Just tell me. No, the answer is no. Yes, and and thank you, Creed. Uh, it, it's it's ridiculous to think that something so beautiful, so difficult, so meaningful would be something that you could master in a very short period of time. It's not days, weeks, or months. It's years to become good at that. And yet, when we enter into ministry stuff, when you start a microchurch or you open up your home for something, you really think it's supposed to be amazing from day one, and like two weeks in, it's not, or, or six months in, it's not, or a year in, it's not, and you just think, this isn't for me. You know, I'm just not, I don't, maybe God isn't real. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe I just have no, no gifts, and you go into depression. It's the same problem. It's that identity problem, which for some reason you think ministry isn't hard or ministry doesn't require. Mastery of ministry is like any other thing. It takes time and effort, and it's worth it. It's worth it. And we'll, we'll, we'll quit too soon. You know, it's, it's, I played violin. I played violin from, from fourth and fifth grade. That's what I did. So nine and ten. And I never got past Turkey in the Straw. And I never and I never sounded good on the violin uh, because I didn't want to put the work in, because I didn't want to put the effort. I still think it's a beautiful instrument. I wish I could play the violin, but it's 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 a simple matter of I quit too soon. I quit too soon. So it's like somehow we, we told me, I think we have to not just allow ourselves some space or room for failure, but to redefine what it means to live in the world, what it even means to be a human being. It, it, it means to stumble and fail and learn and grow and experience life through all of that. Through the, through the bitterness of failure and the, the highs and joys of success and to accept that this is, this is humanity. This is, who, this is the best version of a life lived. It's full of failures, full of failures. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean sin, like willful disobedience against God. I think that also is something we have to humbly accept that we are going to keep doing things that, that displease God, that, that betray our own sense of morality or right or wrong uh, and that should be met with deep felt remorse and repentance but actually just failure itself is a feature of learning so not even just sin just you tried something and you were bad at it you were bad at it and that's cool it's good it's 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 not it's not uh, an occasion for self-hatred it's just a part of being a leader. It's a part of being a growing human being. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I think, yeah, especially for for people who maybe struggle with, you know, 
maybe public opinion or public perception to fail, not only does it reflect badly on, I guess, yeah, you feel it personally, like, oh man, I messed up. But then there's also this element of fear of what other people will think about me because I failed. Um, like, because I wasn't good at this thing, this person's going to think I stink at life or that I'm not cut out for anything and what good am I to the kingdom or whatever. And so to even hear, like, you say, like, no, you're going to fail. And that's part of it. That That's part of ministry. Ministry is trying and failing and trying and succeeding. And, like, I, I gosh, this is going way, way back. I remember you talking about mission and innovation and imagination. I don't know if you remember that, but you had talked about um, how when people try to start something, it's really easy to try to want to take everything that's been done before and apply that to this new context. And it fails because in the failure and the trying and the failing, uh, you know, God makes you his. Mm. And actually, maybe you even gave the illustration of uh, the hobbit and smog I doubt that. I doubt that. And oh, smog. That, that rings a bell. And Bard, because smog has that one hole in his like dragon scaliness, and you have to get the arrow just right in smog, or else he's gonna come back for you. And I think you <laughs> you gave that as an example of like trying and failing. Like you you try and you miss a whole bunch of times, but every once in a while you get it right. Yeah. And it's right there. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Just it reminded me of that. For all the Lord of the Rings people in the, in the audience. <laughs> cool. Um, so I guess with that, I don't know. I Well, I, let, me, let me just last thought about that. Yeah. To create a, a community, an environment, and we want to be this, I think. We have been, and we, and we are. But to continue to be this kind of community, we need to not just make it okay and not just not compare each other, do that what that fear that you have, but to actually celebrate each other's failures. Because when we fail, we can just say, I mean, actually look at a person. If you do an outreach and nobody comes or it's just super awkward or one person comes and you just make a total mess of it. Uh, you know, we you just afterwards just be like, yeah, that was we really did that badly. Look at all we can learn from this. This is you want to you wanna, that ought to bring you happiness and joy, because you're going to learn so much from that. And and laugh at it, laugh at it, laugh at yourself. If you can't, if you're going to like burden yourself with that failure, and do it for each other, do it for each other. Like set each other free in that. When something doesn't go well, enjoy it, laugh with it. Don't maybe laugh at the person, but laugh with <laughs> the person. And also, you, if you're worried about comparing yourself to some other person in ministry and what they're doing, how they're succeeding, just please understand uh, all the kind of behavioral ec economics and all the, the sort of interesting social research that's been done on that is, is one result is that no one really actually cares about your life and what you're doing. Uh, you, you think that it sucks, but it's true. You think, oh, everyone's going to look at my failure and just think I'm terrible. They're not, because they're really just thinking about themselves and their own failures, like you are, uh, <laughs> not thinking about, you're not looking at your other, 
when was the last time you looked at another person in a microchurch and just thought, well, don't they suck? You know, you don't, you don't do it. Well, they're really underperforming, you know. You don't do that. Trust me, people aren't doing that to you. And certainly not here. It's just not happening here. You're surrounded by people who are rooting for you uh, to succeed. We really are. So you can, you can drop that because that's an illusion anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, last thing I'll say on this and just – I think it was Chesterton that said, you know, anything worth doing is worth doing badly. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I just hear there that. You go. So maybe the, the last thing um, I'll, I'll kind of allow or maybe have for you. Um, yeah, just as the underground changes and evolves and, I don't know, enters into new seasons of ministry and in a new life. Um, I, don't, I just think there's there's something powerful about the founder um, just speaking into to that, uh, whether it's changed, like how, what is the heart or your heart for this place that, I don't know, that you see as valuable that you hope we never lose or, I don't know, just, yeah, where your current thoughts are in, in that. Oh, it's hard to... That might be too broad. Well, it's hard to pick one, right? Um, well, <clears throat> we, we talked about this earlier too, but I, I... Maybe because I just finished writing this book on microchurches, um, and it's in my heart. You know, Jesus once said, um, while looking at I, probably a child... He said, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it's better for them to have essentially not been born. Uh, it's like there's a few moments, flashpoints in the life of Jesus where he shows genuine, terrifying anger. Like you, you didn't want to be on the other side of that. The, the gentleness, the the mildness, the moderation, the, the beauty of the way that this man walked the earth. And yet there's these moments, these flashes of like terrifying authority. And this is one of them. And it has to do with standing up for a little person. Standing up for, I don't know, the, the perspective, the posture against a little person. So the, the term there that gets translated little one, one of these little ones, he doesn't say children. He could use the word children, but he doesn't. He chooses, he says one of these little ones. And the word there is in Greek is micron, micron. It's where we get the word micro and why we, partly why we have chosen the term micro church. It's something to do with the, the heart of God toward small things. As repositories for his grace and his fury. And I just think God loves what you do. Your small expressions of the church, which are creative and focused 
and caring for just, in some cases, very, very small groups of people. Like you're fighting for, you're, you're trying to be the church or love a group of people that maybe are unseen by anyone. And there's so much, I mean, in the last 30 years, at least in the church world, in the kind of church ministry world, there's so much drive to be bigger. And I think that really at some important theological level is misguided. Not that we don't yearn for the expansion of the kingdom of God, the 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 fame of Jesus, the glory of God to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We want that, but not the growth of one in particular thing to be so big that somehow the people within it become, their egos get out of control. And there's just all kinds of like sin and bad things that happen when churches have ambition to be big. And the contrary is true too. Small expressions of the church, these little ones, these microns, are both beloved by God, protected by God, and unique places where he wants to bring and see his kingdom come in inadequate, awkward ways. It's like the best version of the church is small. And I kind of want to crusade on that a bit. I kind of want to come after these big ego leaders that want big churches to feel good about themselves and the people that want to come and sit in the in the rows and and feel like they're a part of something just because they've spent a lot of money and uh, you know big, bought a big building or whatever I just I'm embarrassed by that in the arc of history of the church, that will be uh, an embarrassment to us. And so I would say that in, in many ways, you are the keepers of this, of this other idea, this other, and, not, and, and I think what makes you unique or what makes us unique is not just that we affirm small expressions of the church, which are missional and focused and, and wherever God has called you, but it's that we try to also be something together. It's not just dispersed. We are not just a diaspora of his people on mission, but we also try to understand our relationship to each other. We do that imperfectly, but we're trying. We're trying to understand what it looks like to be a network of microns, of, of little ones who are beautiful and awkward and trying and failing, but expressing something pure about the kingdom and and being that somehow together um, understanding our relationship to, to the bigger expression of the church too um, it's unique it's important uh, and having left here you know kind of getting out of the fishbowl a little bit and being out in the world I just see how powerful that is how if 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 I could convince uh, traditional churches, which I'm trying now, or I could convince startups or church plants to 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 redefine the church, it would be this way: to make it small again, and then to to network.
that those small, free, autonomous, beautiful, focused, called communities of people together. And that's what you are. And I guess if you're asking me, I would say, please don't lose that. You know, please keep nurturing that. And if you're doing something kind of modest that you think is no big deal, please understand it is a big deal. It's a big deal. Your group that meets in a dorm on campus or in your home or goes out and does outreach on the streets on the weekends or cares for some particular group of people that the church doesn't seem to care about in some larger sense. It's, uh, it's just a, it's a revolution. Please don't give up. And there may be people in this room as well that have an idea, actually. A group of people you see that no one's caring for, where the people of God are not present in, in, in form. Start it. Get in there. Get a team of people and get in there. Um, how's that? I think that's good. What okay. do you guys think? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I I'll invite Lucas back up to you know kind of close this out. But I will say this much that I mean it is always an honor to to hear from you to receive from you your wisdom your experience to hear what you're thinking um gosh i find it so vital for my own development as a leader uh and really you know as selfishly as we want you here we also commit you to god and recognize that ultimately you are his and we Thanks, we love you and we are praying for everyone in ireland and all the things that you guys have your hands in can um, i can i make a commercial Sure. For my Irish, for my Irish friends. Please do. I didn't uh, give you so a minute. So there's a number of like things we're trying to do um, in Ireland. Again, it's it's like there's these. There really are beautiful, gifted, incredible people doing stuff in the frontier mission there. But there's almost no platform for them because they're so, I don't know, culturally modest that they wouldn't create a platform. And so we're. I'm trying to sort of. I. It's a good it's a good partnership because they can just blame it on me like the American you know, uh, which is it's it's working great. Um, I'm happy to do that. So one of the things we're trying to do is to create a, a publishing imprint. There is no Christian publishing in the island. Um, so we I, I want to do that. We're going to do that. We're hoping to do that. Uh, and so we have, I have a Kickstarter. We have a Kickstarter for what we're calling Praxis Press. Um, so uh, give me some money. I need, I need, I need. We need about. Um, we still need about three thousand dollars to make this to make this thing work. And there's only like four days left in the Kickstarter campaign. Um, so help them out, because if if we can if we can get this thing launched, we can publish the first three books. This will fund the first three books being published. So we're talking about Irish authors writing into an Irish context. It's never been done. It doesn't, hasn't existed. It's, and then you can help make that a reality, make that exist. And there's loads of projects like that we're doing, but that's the one, if I would ask for help for something, um, you know, you, you don't have to give me a love offering or anything weird like that. Just hop on <laughs> Kickstarter and give 20 bucks or something and you'll actually get a book. So 
you I, I forget how it's they've laid it out but there's like if you if you give a certain amount of money you get a the first book or the second book or the third book or whatever. So just chip in and you'll actually get a book too for it. So you're just, you're just paying a lot for a book, but you're paying up front <laughs> for our first book. So help me out. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Ryan. So kickstarter.com. And then I guess you just type in Praxis Press. Leanne, is that true? Would that work? Yeah. Praxis Press. P R. A X I S. Man, it's it's anxious to spell something out loud. That's you just feel like, oh God, I'm spelling it out loud. P R A X I S is how you spell practice. I'll put it. I'll I'll tweet or put it on my social media thing. Um, so when you're not feeling anxious, get on there, check it out. When you're feeling strong, get on there and check it out. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. All right, Thank guys. you guys. <laughs>